Hi, on the pod today, graffiti, ancient stuff, modern stuff, and a kind of a clash between the ancient and the modern. You may have heard about the case earlier this week of the Chinese graffiti in Egypt. If not, in a nutshell, here it is. A Chinese tourist was visiting the ancient Egyptian temple in the city of Luxor. She was looking at a stone relief of Alexander the Great. And on this 3,500-year-old artwork, she spied a not-so-ancient inscription, an inscription in Chinese. She read the Chinese characters, which said, (laughs) well, nothing too original. They said, Ding Jinhao was here. She took a photo of the graffiti, and she posted it online with an apology, I guess kind of on behalf of the Chinese people. And there was a lot of anger about this. We'll hear about that in a minute. Afterwards, we'll hear from an Oxford Egyptologist about attitudes to graffiti from back in the day, back in those days of ancient Egypt. First, though, the reaction in modern-day China. That photo that the tourist snap was tweeted and retweeted, and the online hunt for the guy who called himself Ding Jinhao, that hunt began. Rachel Liu watched the ensuing online frenzy. She's the co-founder and editor of the website Tea Leaf Nation in Hong Kong. Here she is talking with the big show's Marco Werman. Ding Jinghao has a pretty rare name. And very soon, vigilantes in China started to find out who he is, you know, where he's from. And they soon found out that he is from Nanjing. And he is a young boy uh, who attends seventh grade, I believe. And so there is a lot of criticism online of this boy and his parents. And there's a lot of reflection about, you know, Chinese tourists and what they do abroad these days. The whole debate has gotten very polarized online. There is a, a tinge of, you know, class warfare in here, basically, because uh, any Chinese person who can go abroad to tour at all, and especially to a place like Egypt, is assumed to be rich. And these days, you know, rich people are not well-liked in China. Um, There's a lot of people who assume that they somehow got rich through corruption or other very sketchy methods. So there's a lot of uh, criticism of Ding and his parents on that level. How are Chinese tourists viewed overseas? And how do Chinese think of themselves as tourists overseas? China is a big country, so there's a lot of people who are able to go overseas these days. There is sort of a bourgeois middle class who go abroad and think of themselves as very, quote-unquote, civilized, and they will point out the bad behavior of other Chinese tourists. And then there is a lot of people who go abroad and think this is kind of their spring break because mm. they've made a lot of money and they're able to afford this vacation and, you know, they're going to really have a good time. As to how they are viewed overseas, I think I saw like a survey a couple of years ago where they rank the least like tourists and the Americans are number one and the Chinese are number two. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even, even the Chinese vice premier, Wang Yang, recently scolded Chinese saying, They speak loudly in public, carve characters on tourist attractions, cross a road when the traffic lights are still red, spit anywhere. He says it damages the image of the Chinese people. How are Chinese responding to comments like that? Yeah, I think a lot of people do agree that it is a problem. And because China is expanding in many ways abroad, you know, in terms of, you know, business relationships, it does damage the overall impression of the Chinese people in the minds of many foreigners. 
loud and lots of money to spend. That's a reputation that has dogged Americans for many years, the idea of the ugly American. Do you think that the economic mobility in China has created an understanding of an ugly Chinese at this point? I'm located in Hong Kong, and you know it is technically a part of China. But when mainland tourists come to Hong Kong, there is a negative stereotypes associated with them, not waiting in line, talking loudly on subways, and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm sure that just a small subgroup of these millions of Chinese tourists who come to Hong Kong and contribute to the Hong Kong economy, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot of you know local resentment against them. You know, and, and just getting back to what uh, Din Jinhao scrawled in graffiti on the wall in Luxor in Egypt. I mean, uh, Din Jinhao was here. That, that That's a very passe bit of graffiti. Is, is that common, though, in China? Uh, yeah, it is actually quite common. If you go to Chinese sites, you see this kind of graffitis all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, so-and-so is here. You know, I'm here with my boyfriend, girlfriend. We're going to be together forever, that kind of thing. So <laughs> it is quite common. <laughs> Rachel Liu, editor of the website Tea Leaf Nation, speaking with us from Hong Kong. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so this kid gets given a really hard time. But maybe it's just a bit unfair. Maybe he was just channeling the habits of antiquity. Because in ancient times, graffiti, it didn't really connote vandalism the way that it does today. Now, before we go much further into that, I have no choice, no choice, but to turn to the graffiti scene from Monty Python's Life of Brian. It's vaguely on point. I'm sure if you saw the movie, you remember it. Brian is painting anti-Roman graffiti on a wall, and he's caught by a Roman soldier who kind of morphs into a Latin school teacher. What's this then? Romanes aeon domus. People call Romanes, they go the house. It, it says Romans go home. No, it doesn't. <laughs> What's Latin for Roman? Come on, Okay, you get the idea. And then Brian ends up writing the correct Latin all over the wall a hundred times, school punishment style. That may have been out of place in ancient Roman or Greek or Egyptian times, But graffiti certainly was around then. And not only was it around, it was kind of encouraged. So says Chloe Regazzoli. She studies ancient graffiti. That's got to be a fun job. She's a research fellow in Egyptology at Oxford University. And she told the big show's Marco Werman about ancient attitudes to graffiti. I would say that in ancient Egypt, it was socially accepted and maybe even expected. And it's part of showing off your status in life, where nowadays we see it as a subversive hooliganism attitude. Mm. Did leaders in ancient Egypt kind of encourage graffiti? Well, you have graffiti in pretty official places, a tomb, a temple. So you have the feeling that there were some kind of official like a privilege which was uh, granted. And as you say, I mean, it was kind of just a, an impulse for people who were in a place and they wanted to leave a memory that they were there to say, I was here. But, I mean, have you found anything risque that kind of corresponds to contemporary graffiti, foul language, insults? Yeah, absolutely. You find criticism, you find private joke, you find witticism, you even have pornographic graffiti. Like what? Can you give us a, a mild oh, like, example? 
yes, a mild example. You will find the drawing, which might be a graffiti of a, an official in a very official position, and next to it, the same official a drawing by a different person, but the next official bent in two and being penetrated from behind uh, by another person. Kind then of I early, think, early editorial cartoons in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like this, you know, ha- having jokes with your mates. So I'm just curious, I mean, as for the writing, not the drawings, but the writing, how was literacy at the time? Could the average ancient Egyptian read what was written in this graffiti? No, absolutely not. And I think that's the mistake we made for a very long time as Egyptologists. We considered this as, you know, secondary inscriptions, not realizing that they had to be made by very high officials because they were those who could write at the time. We considered that maybe 1% of the ancient Egyptian population could read and write. So that's Egypt. I'm just curious, where else in the world have uh, you found ancient graffiti that's kind of surprised you? Uh, I would say everywhere I did look. Really? Yes. Any place that doesn't have graffiti? When you don't find them, it's because you don't find a place where they could have been written on. Either the settlements have been destroyed. You know, even in Maya society, obviously, they had graffiti. Do you think graffiti anywhere around the world follows anything thematic? I would say that the main common feature is that it's a social practice. It's something you do to be part of a community. And it's still true nowadays, you know, uh, with graffiti that we see as part of some underground culture and that can be pornographic or transgressive. The people who do it, do it to be part of a group, of a group of naughty boys, if you want. Uh, And in ancient Egypt, in in Rome, in China, each time it's to claim uh, your belonging to a certain social group. So you do see similar messages no matter where you go around the world? I was there, and I belong to that kind of group. Uh, It's part of identity claiming. I came here as a scribe. In Greece, I came here as a minor. Well, I mean, that's true today, isn't it? I mean, because uh, modern graffiti kind of started in urban areas in the States as, as a way for street gangs to claim their turf. Yeah, absolutely. It's a way to appropriate a place, to claim a place or to redefine a place when you make it your place or the place of a group by inscribing those graffiti. Right. Just like that kid from China who was just there in Luxor saying, I was here. When I saw that that thing, I was amazed because that's the, the most basic graffiti from ancient Egypt to nowadays. Chloe Ragazzoli is a research fellow in Egyptology at Oxford University. Her specialty is ancient graffiti. Chloe, thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, that's enough old graffiti. Let's get contemporary. And it's here that the word graffiti is, well, stretched a little. Graffiti is, of course, an Italian word, and it means little scratches, as in, you know, the way that people used to leave their mark back in Egypt, etc. Today, there's no scratching, but lots of spray paint cans. And in Germany, where it's a big problem, the cost of cleaning up the graffiti just along the nation's railroad tracks It runs about $10 million a year. That's what the German state railway, Deutsche Bahn, says. It reports that it had 14,000 incidents of graffiti last year alone, along train tracks, bridges, railway stations, you name it. And the people at Deutsche Bahn say they've had enough. They're not going to take it anymore. They are going to deploy anti-graffiti drones. Yeah, mini helicopter drones to keep an eye out for the vandals. We needed to know a little bit more about this. So Marco talked to Kimo Quaintance. He teaches international relations at the University of the German Armed Forces in Munich. He told Marco 
little bit more about Deutsche Bahn's plans. They seem to have purchased some mid-level consumer drones that uh, they cost about 60,000 euro a piece. And these are drones that um, would be maybe a meter in diameter. Uh, they could fly for about 90 minutes, uh, take photographs or have camera views with uh, normal cameras or infrared cameras. And uh, they would be able to spot people coming along the railways. Uh, you know, the idea being that they would spot people who are coming into the train yards to tag trains or to, to ride on walls. Uh, these are not high-level uh, military drones like you'd find in Iraq. Um, so, you know, much more this, uh, this emerging consumer-level drone. And given the high value, though, on privacy and not having CCTV and eyes in the sky everywhere, how have Germans reacted to the anti-graffiti drones? Is there already concern that these drones will be looking for stuff other than graffiti? Yeah, there's always, there's always a lot of skepticism in Germany whenever the state takes on more power to, uh, to you know, operate any kind of surveillance platform or to observe people. Uh, and, and the fear, I think, for most Germans isn't that, uh, you know, this system would be abused at the beginning, but that if it becomes effective and more technology creeps in, you, you have this, this incremental effect where, all right, we can use it now to, to spot people. Now could we match it to a photo database or, you know, could you sort of get this creeping inter- incrementalism that uh, increases the capability of the surveillance powers of the state? That's a traditional concern for Germans. So anytime you see this movement uh, of the government into these areas, you'll always find very, very strong resistance in, in the German public. And Kimo, you commute by train in and around Munich. How bad is the graffiti? What did you see this morning on the ride in? <laughs> well, yeah, it was raining today and I didn't see anything. Uh, there was there was absolutely, <laughs> you know, I don't know if the, if the rain had kept the graffiti writers out or uh, if it's just not a big problem in Munich. I'm originally from the state, so I have a bit of a different view on it than than German authorities. How different um, is your view? You just see it as that that's part of this landscape. <laughs> yeah, and I don't even see it as a as a as a noticeable part of the landscape. You see the you know some tags around. I, what, what's more noticeable for me is the the lack of originality in in German graffiti writing. Um, in Berlin, I think you get a, a, a bigger problem or a bigger issue because there's more of a graffiti culture. What are but, some of the messages? I mean, what why is it so unoriginal? Well, it's uh, it's just it's just mostly you know tags of names, uh, copies of old New York styles. Uh, you you really have to get in kind of the, these Berlin suburbs until I think you start to get this more creative street art. It's not generally what you would see on trains, uh, and and people I, I think that people don't have enough time in the train yards to really do these kind of elaborate you know, full car spreads that you would have seen, say, in New York in the 80s. Right. So. I mean, that, that's kind of the wild thing of graffiti in Europe, that it's so kind of stuck in that 1970s, 80s uh, style of the South Bronx. Yeah, exactly. And, and you'll even see these, these kind of shout-outs to New York or shout-outs to the Bronx in the graffiti itself. <laughs> so it's, it's very derivative in, in, uh, in many ways, which is a little disappointing. <laughs> yeah. I gather you offer a course or offered a course on how to build cheap surveillance drones? No, what I, what I offered is I offered an international politics course that was focused on the democratization of technology. And as part of that course, what I had my students do as a class project is I had them uh, develop and build a drone that would be able to fly autonomously and hack into Wi-Fi networks. And so this was a group of 12 non-technical students, you know, international politics and law students. Uh, and part of the lesson for them was to realize how accessible this technology is um, and how easy it is to do things that just a few years ago were very James Bond high tech. 
that sounds like a rather subversive course. So were you actually allowed to teach it? A lot of these things I, I go I go by the principle of, you know, it's better to ask for, for you know, beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. So <laughs> I taught them lock picking. Uh, you know, we did all sorts really? of things that oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I want them to have this view of systems um, that they don't they don't cherish a system just because someone says it's secure, that they can really start to get their heads around it the way that hackers do. I really want them to understand that uh, that a lot of these things that seem like really advanced capabilities are just a matter of getting your hands on the right tools and spending a little time learning and practicing. Normally, what you would do if you had a course that addressed drones is you talk about the ethics of it, you talk about cases in warfare. It becomes very theoretical. But my view is that this is an area that's evolving so quickly and is going to become so central to the, our discussions about warfare or civil liberties that you really need to have students get their hands on it so that they can start to ask their own questions based on their own experience of developing these capabilities themselves. I mean, drones and surveillance cameras are increasingly becoming a, a fact of life here in the U.S. Do, yeah. do you think these uh, anti-graffiti drones in Germany uh, indicate that Germany's on the same path? No, Germany's, Germany's going to follow a different path because the privacy laws are far more restrictive. So I had I talked with a group uh, uh, that sells consumer-level drones uh, worldwide, and they said that they, they have a pretty good market in Asia. They've got a very good market in the U.S. They sell no drones in Germany because there's almost nowhere. They're, they're, there's hardly anywhere for anyone to fly the drones legally. Uh, you know, anytime you'd have a camera that would look at a private property or could see someone walking down the street, that could be considered an invasion of privacy. Kim Acquaintance teaches international relations at the University of the German Armed Forces in Munich. Thanks for speaking with us, Kimo. Thank you, Marco. All right, another pod bites the dust. There'll be a blog post, links, photos of ancient graffiti, all of that kind of stuff at theworld.org slash language. If you're on Facebook, there's a World in Words page. You can spray paint your comments there. And I'm on Twitter. My handle is Patrick Cox. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. See you next time.